Highland Falls, El Paso, Clarksville, Watertown, and from other important military capitals around the globe. Eye on Defense brings the top military and defense issues into focus. Eye on Defense is proudly sponsored by Big Sarge Pre-Owned TA-50 Emporium and The Last Hope Jewelry and Pawn. And now, citizens of Earth, brace yourselves for the next episode of Eye on Defense. Defense, 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 defense. All right, what's going on, everybody? We're back. It's uh, episode 119, and today is 3 February. Um, February, 3 May, and it's been a mild spring this year. Uh, it's still pretty chilly out there. I was surprised, but I have been able to get my bike out and ride it. I'm pretty happy about that and going on a hike. So four days in a row, no, I don't want to lie to you, three days in a row, I've done some sort of fitness outside. It's been nice, sunny, a little bit chilly, but uh, anyway, I don't know why I brought that up. I thought I'd bring it up. Uh, man, I, there's 10 stories tonight and even more from the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. I think there's four. And then there's a Ukraine package. So I'm telling you now, I'll probably go a little bit long. Um, I got to figure out if I want to go 30 minutes or less. I don't, I don't know. There's just so many stories out there to get to. Um, I can actually probably do another show a week. Uh, about three shows a week, but I don't know with my job as nutty as it is right now. I don't know if I could pull it off, but uh, anyway, here we go. Uh, from Department of Defense, uh, 3 May today, Biden administration announces additional security assistance for Ukraine. This is a, a drawdown from DOT inventories. <clears throat> it includes U.S. provided HIMARS, additional howitzers, artillery and mortar rounds, and armor capabilities. Uh, valued at $300 million. In the package is, I'll go down the list here, additional ammunition for HIMARS, 155mm howitzers. It doesn't say what if they're tracked or, or towed. Uh, 155mm artillery rounds. And then we get to some mortar rounds here, 120mm, 81mm, and 60mm. The small stuff. So basically, all battalion size and one company size mortar. Uh, Tube-launched, optically-tracked, wire-guided. Of course, we know it's wireless-guided. Uh, Tow missile. Heavy, it's a heavy anti-armor uh, missile. We know that. AT-4 and Carl Gustav anti-armor weapon systems. Uh, AT-4 is 84 millimeter, of course, and Carl G is 84 millimeter also. Kind of a squad and platoon asset there. Hydra-70 aircraft rockets, small arms and small arms ammo. Demo munitions for obstacle clearing, which we see all the time. Trucks and trailers to transport heavy equipment. Test and diagnostic equipment to support vehicle maintenance and repair. And spare parts and other field equipment for $300 million. What's kind of absent on this is there's no 120mm tank rounds and there's no 25mm Bradley rounds uh, for uh, Bradley fighting vehicles. So... I mean, everybody keeps talking about this offensive, this uh, impending, uh, is that a word, impending? Upcoming offensive. Uh, there's no tank stuff or uh, Bradley fighting vehicle stuff. I don't know if that means anything. <clears throat> small arms and small arms ammunition, 
I don't know, would you consider 50 cal small, small arms? I would not. There's no 50 cal ammunition either. All right, enough on that. So like I said, we got 10 stories. Defense security cooperation, which we always do. And there's been a lot of action lately. In fact, I had to do a, a separate page of them. There's one, two, three, four, five. Five of them. And we'll start with Norway, 26 April, 2023. Government of Norway, because there's so many of them, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. So Norway C-130J sustainment, 26 April, 23. The government of Norway has requested continued sustainment and associated services for four C-130J aircraft beyond Block 6 through 2028. Included are joint mission planning systems, aircraft components, spare parts, consumables, and accessories repair and return support uh, estimated cost is $166 million. Principal contractor is Lockheed Martin Marietta, Georgia. That's number one. Number two is Norway. Defense articles and services related to the MH-60R multi-mission helicopter. April 26 to 23, government of Norway has requested to buy six MH-60R multi-mission helicopters, 15 uh, engines, 12 installed and 3 spared. Spares, uh, and then some other stuff, radios and whatnot. Uh, GAU-21 crew serve guns, including pentel and laser pointer. Aviation maintenance weapons loading trainer. Tactical operation flight trainer. Spare, spare parts, repair parts, personal training and equipment. Total estimated program cost is $1 billion. Principal contractor will be Lockheed Martin. Rotary and Mission Systems, Oswego, New York. So that's two down. Next one is United Kingdom, Advanced Precision Kill Weapon System, two, uh, 28 April. The government of the United Kingdom is requested by up to 786. No, that's not right. 768 Advanced Precision Kill Weapon Systems, two, all up rounds, single variant. Also included is support equipment, spare and repair parts, pubs, and technical documentation. Total estimated cost is $31.2 million. Principal contractors will be BAE Systems, Nashua, New Hampshire. And it looks like we have two left. Latvia, Naval Strike Missile. I'm sorry, Latvia, Naval Strike Missile Coastal Defense System. This is 2 May, 2023, yesterday. The government of Latvia has requested to buy a Naval Strike Missile Coastal Defense System, also known as NSM-CDS, including tactical and training missiles, containers, mobile operational platforms, integration equipment, ordnance handling equipment, training equipment, and training aids. Estimated cost is $110 million. The proposed sale will improve Latvia's capability to meet Current and future threats in the Baltic Sea maritime domain. The principal contractor is to be determined. Did I tell you the price on that one? $110 million. Okay, last one is Czech Republic. AH1Z and UH1Y refurbishment modernization. This is 3 May today. The government of Czech Republic is requested by equipment and services to refurbish six H1Z and two UH1Y excess defense article helicopters. Uh, the equipment and services will include 22 uh, engines, 16 installed, and six spares. 
14 Honeywell Embedded Global Positioning System Inertial Navigation System, uh, 4 M240 machine guns, 24 CompSec radios, also included as support equipment, spare engine containers, and flight training devices. The total estimated value is $650 million. Principal contractors will be Bell Helicopter, Textron, Fort Worth, Texas, and GE Company, Lynn, Massachusetts. One, two, three, four, and five. There's your five latest defense security cooperation uh, four military cells right there. Go over them real quick. Uh, Norway C-130. Let's see. Norway MH-60R. United Kingdom Advanced Precision Kill Weapon System. Latvia Naval Strike Missile. Czech Republic AH-1 and UH-1Y. And since we're talking about uh, United Kingdom Advanced Precision Kill Weapon System, there's an actual article on that uh, from Ukraine. Let me pull it up. Well, that'll be our first article, I think. Yep. Like I said, I got two Word documents I'm working off of. I got to pull one up. Here it is right up front. From Eurasian Times, the author is Parth Satam, S-A-T-A-M, from 29 April. Ukraine's precision kill APKWS-2 rockets begin hitting Russia. Theoretically, it can annihilate UAVs and main battle tanks. Uh, again, this is from Eurasian Times just a couple of days ago. The Ukrainian army finally began using the Advanced Precision Kill Weapon System, also known as APKWS-2, on Russian targets almost a year after the Pentagon announced it would send the laser-guided rocket platform to Kiev. A video tweeted by the popular Ukrainian handle Ukraine Weapons Tracker shows the armed forces of Ukraine firing the APKWS. According to the tweet, the weapon is being employed by the 37th Marine Brigade. It is mounted on a Humvee. Weapons being used in the Kherson Oblast, where Ukraine, is, uh, where Ukraine has lost a substantial amount of unmanned aerial vehicles and surface-to-air platforms like the Jepard and the S-300. A Russian Ministry of Defense update on 28 April also claimed that Ukrainian losses of 65 soldiers, three military vehicles, and a self-propelled gun and a D-30 artillery piece. Uh, so, a very good article here. So, what is the APKWS? In 2005, the U.S. Army started a new development program called the APKWS-2, and BAE Systems was selected as prime contractor. Uh, BAE Systems filtered, uh, fitted the APKWS with a distributed aperture semi-active laser seeker. Guidance and control system to convert the unguided Hydra 70 rocket into a precision munition. And where did we just see Hydra rocket? We just saw it in the latest package to Ukraine. Anyway, back to the article. This enabled them to engage soft and lightly armored vehicles in restricted areas with minimal collateral damage. The semi-active semi laser-guided rocket system consists of three main components, which includes an M151, MK152, and MK82 warhead, M423 and MK435 fuse, and a standard MK66 rocket motor. So you got a warhead if you're using a rocket motor. The rocket system has wing assemblies and folding fins, uh, each with a low-cost laser seeker located on the leading edge. They work as a single seeker, allowing existing warheads from the Hydra 70 system to be used without needing a laser seeker in the nose. 
Oh, so they're on the fins and not the nose. The system works with standard laser designators, which involve the operator highlighting the target for the rocket to home into. It is known to have a range of over 4.83K from a helicopter and 11.27K from fixed-wing aircraft. This was increased by 30% after a software upgrade by BA Systems in 2021. 4K range from a helicopter and 11K range from fixed-wing. Uh, possible impact on Russian weapons. The rocket system can be deployed against air, ground, and sea-based threats and used for close uh, close air support operations. Laser guidance is the fundamental aiming system for the rocket uh, for the guided rocket, where the fin-mounted system detects even faint laser sparkles from a designator. Uh, overhead drone can shine the laser on a tank for the rocket to hit the turret. The rocket can also come in handy against drones like the Lancelot. Lancet 3 loitering munition or the Orland 10 surveillance UAV. However, the small aircraft must be continuously illuminated with the laser for the rocket to hit them. Anyway, that's it. Kind of a short story. Informative, though, we were just talking about uh, the Hydra rocket. Moving on. Uh, UK, uh, uh, European Union arm armaments. Where's this one? This is from 3 May uh, from Defense News. Tom King's Kington and Vivini Machi. EU pledges over $1 billion to refresh its arms factories for Ukraine. Uh, the European Union committed $553 million or €500 million Euro on Wednesday, which was today, to beefing up the blocks ammunition production lines to better supply Ukraine, says, saying member states could match the sum with individual contributions. The total of 1 billion euro to bolster output from factories across Europe will add to another 2 billion euro already committed by the EU to compensate members who donated from their existing stocks to Kiev, as well as joint purchase of fresh stocks to help rush to halt to help halt Russia's invasion. Announcing the draft legislation legislation for investing in EU factories. European Commissioner President Ursula von der Leyen said, Ukraine is heroically resisting the brutal Russian invader. We stand by our promise to support Ukraine and its people for as long as it takes. Uh, there's this EU Internal Market Commissioner. His name is something Breton. Theory Breton added that he was confident the so-called act in support of ammunition production, also known as ASAP, you cannot make this up. Act in support of ammunition production, ASAP, would push EU output to 1 million rounds of ammunition a year within 12 months. Uh, the challenge is arming Ukraine for its planned spring offensive with the EU industrial base, which has suffered from what the EU called years of underinvestment. We're back to the acronym here. The ASAP cash will be used to build new factories, producing ammunition and missiles, upgrading existing ones, encourage cross-border partnerships, improve access to raw materials, test and recondition old ammunition stocks, and train new staff, the Block said. Uh, here's a quote from Joseph Burrell, the Block's foreign policy chief. Uh, this is not only for the benefit of the Ukraine armed forces in their fight to defend Ukraine's sovereignty, but also for the security of the European Union. On Wednesday, this guy, 
uh, Mr. Breton, I think it's a guy, Theory Breton. Uh, he tweeted a video of his re yeah, of his recent visits to EU production sites, including Poland, Slovakia, Croatia, Slovenia, Sweden, Bulgaria, Romania, Finland, France, Czechia, Italy, Austria, and Greece, and previewed, previewed future sites in Germany and Spain. So 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 countries. So this guy, Mr. Breton, I'm going to read it again. On Wednesday, he tweeted a video of his recent visits to EU production sites, including all those countries I mentioned, 15. So this sucker is, he's taking a European tour, man. He's going to all those countries. I mean, how much ammunition did they uh, could they buy with all his uh, hotel stays? Probably a little bit. Anyway, moving on. Not in my business, really. Uh, the scheme has been dubbed the third track of third track in a package of measures agreed on in March, starting with one billion euros to be spent reimbursing members for ammunition stocks donated to Ukraine. Track two is to spend another billion on a joint purchase by members on new ammunition has sparked a row whether the cash should be spent within the EU or be used outside the union to speed up purchasing. The fund would come, so all the money's coming from this EU's off-budget mechanism known as the European Peace Facility, which holds more than 8 billion euro. Sweden, which currently holds a revolving presidency of the EU Council, announced on Wednesday a deal has been struck. Uh, it's kind of weird that all this money from the European Peace Facility is being spent on ammunition plants. really doesn't say what type of ammunition they're building, does it? Did I miss something there? Uh, I should have, I should have, I thought it said, and uh, let me stand, I'm, I'm going to pause just one second. Yep, there it is. To be yield, uh, build new factories producing ammunition and missiles. Doesn't say what type of ammunition. Let's assume it's 155, right? Okay, enough on that story. I've killed that story. Uh, let's go to Turkey. There was a couple stories on Turkey I wanted to do, but I settled on this one. It's about the drones. Turkey, of course, I mean, they're aces at making drones. And where's it at? The TB12? Um, TB12, that's Tom Brady. The TB2. Where is it at? Here we go. TB, uh, Turkey's uh, Baykar unveils cruise missile for drones. This is from uh, Barak Bekdil from 28 April, Defense News. From Turkey, An Ankara, Turkey. Baykar has revealed a new cruise missile for use on Turkish company TB2, TB3, and Akinci combat drones. The miniature weapon known as the Bayraktar Kamankis was on display 27 April at the some ex expedition in instant Istanbul 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 oh boy I can't think say the name of the exhibition uh, it is powered okay we're getting back to this uh, cruise missile it's powered by a jet engine that has a range of 200 K or 124 miles the company said it features an autopilot system supported by AI technology the missile can fly at speed of Mach 0.7 and carry a 30-kilogram payload, which is 66 pounds. 
Uh, Baycar reported $1.4 billion in revenue for 2022. That's $1.4 billion U.S. dollars. It announced that 99.3% of its revenue came from exports. I'm telling you, these cats can make some drones. Uh, the company has sold its TB2 combat drone to 28 countries and its Akinsey drones to six countries. Baycar did not disclose a per unit price for the Kimankis, but a company engineer, speaking on the condition of anonymity, as he was not authorized to talk to the press, but did, told Defense News his team has tried to minimize the cost of less than $20,000 per unit. That doesn't seem like a lot of money to me. And that's it. End of story. So Turkey has got a cruise missile for their making their uh, very good drones even more lethal. Where do we go next? We'll go to UK and Germany. Those guys are working on some ammunition for tanks somewhere. Here it is. Uh, Defense News, Andrew Tudor, C-H-U-T-E-R, Defense News, 28 April. Britain and Germany advance plan for new armor-piercing tank ammo. Britain and Germany move closer to jointly launching a new main battle tank ammunition this week with the signing of an agreement taking the project to the next stage of development. The two sides, sides signed a statement of intent on 27 April taking development of a 120mm Enhanced Kinetic Energy, EKE, round forward during a meeting in London between UK Armaments Director Andy Start and his German counterpart, Vice Admiral Karsten uh, Stowiski. A statement released by the British following the joint, following the signing said defense officials hope ongoing discussions would lead to a joint program by the end of the year to field new armor-piercing round for the British Army Challenger 3 and German Leopard 2 tanks. What is currently a two-nation program could soon be enlarged to take in other partners and other types of 120mm tank ammunition. A British statement here, under the terms of the new agreement, Germany and the UK will also remain open for additional nations to join the cooperation or be export recipients as well as continuing discussions on potential collaboration for other types of 120mm tank ammunition. That's from the British. Uh, German uh, Admiral Stawiski signaled the expansion of the program could include other nations would be welcomed sooner than later. He had a little quote here. It says, with the statement of intent being signed, the UK and Germany will consider the request to allow for additional partners to join the program as soon as possible. The two nations are already in discussion with a potential additional partner, but nobody is saying exactly who that is for the moment. Uh, my money's on Poland. But what do I know? Uh, that's just a guess. Okay, in the meantime, UK and German officials are preparing the ground for a joint program. A proof of principle evaluation has already passed live fire testing, and the qualification stage has already started. The British Army is the only operator of the Challenger tank in Europe. The Leopard 2, on the other hand, is widely used by NATO countries and others, potentially leading to a significant export of opportunities for an advanced EKE round. A little bit about the British Challenger. Uh, just to throw this in there, uh, the author put this in there. So the British Army's outdated Challenger 2 tank, I don't know why I called it the outdated, I guess, uh, anyway. The British Army's outdated Challenger 2 tank is the only NATO tank firing rifle 120mm ammunition, but a 
but a $1 billion program led by Rheumatol, BAE System Joint Venture, is underway extensively modernizing 148 of the vehicles to the Challenger 3 standard. The standout element of the upgrade is the installation of a new turret carrying Rheumatol's latest L55A1 smoothbore gun. Firing a smoothbore gun will finally bring the Challenger 3 configuration into line with other NATO tanks, thereby enhancing interoperability. Initial operation capability for Challenger 3 is in 2027, with full operational cap operating capability in 2030. The new ammunition is scheduled to be available in time for the latter milestone. So Challenger 3 is going to get a new turret with a new gun, and it should be able to fire this new ammo in 2030, which is seven years away. All right, that's a good story there. Uh, we're sticking with UK because there's another story from UK from Tim Martin, uh, Breaking Defense. What a good author he is. If I can find it. Haven't done a story from him for a while. Uh, please be patient. I'm looking for, what am I doing on time? 25 minutes? Not too bad. I got through those uh, Defense Security Cooperation Agency stories a little bit quicker than I thought I would. Now I can't find the Tim Martin story. Here it is. Uh, Tim Martin's sto uh, story from 2 May. Breaking defense. UK orders 11 Saab Giraffe 1X air surveillance radars. Uh, UK Ministry of Defense has signed two contracts at a combined cost of 25.6 million US with the Swedish manufacturer Saab for production support of 11 Giraffe 1X 3D air surveillance radars the company announced today. Saab described the Giraffe 1X as a lightweight multi-mission 3D surveillance radar for simultaneous air and sur surface surveillance, capable of offering commanders quality air defense target data, drone detection, and counter-rocket artillery and mortar sense and worn with, with, within a single solution. Of course, CRAM is what it's called, counter-rocket artillery and mortar. The acquisition is largely for operational environments, according to the company's statement, which notes the delivery of the first system is already underway. A single unit has been procured by the Royal Navy and will be mounted and tested on the XV experimental vessel Patrick Blackett, a vessel that had been modified by the Royal Navy's X-Innovation Group from a Dutch-built Damon 4008 Fast crew supply ship to test, trial, and experiment new military technologies. It left Portsmouth Naval Base in February to undergo sea acceptance trials according to the Royal Navy. Uh, the manufacturer here, who is it again? Saab, of course. They have a statement. This new capability for the UK has been procured on the basis of the Giraffe 1X being the fastest and most effective solution available with a proven capability that enjoys a high degree of confidence among counter-unmanned aircraft system experts. The UK already has a base of Saab radars with Arthur, designated Mamba and UK service, in operation since 2004, and the land-based giraffe agile multi-beam radar in service since 2010, according to Saab. Uh, the new contracts between the two sides build on a series of land-based orders signed since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, including several thousand of the Saab Next Generation Light Anti-Tank Weapons, also known as NLAW, and the Carl Gustav M4 recordless rifles. We just talked about the old Carl G. 
Based on increased demand across Europe, Saab said in February that it expects production of the weapon systems from the company ground combat portfolio to reach an output of 400,000 units. 400,000 units. That's a lot of anti-tank weapons. All right, where to next? That's our second UK story. Okay, now we're going to come back to the United States, and we've got one, two, three, four stories. And guess what? we got an Army story, a USAF uh, Air Force story, a Navy story, and a Marine Corps story. The only thing we're missing is the, uh, the Space Force. And this wasn't planned. It just kind of turned out that way. Um, and we'll get to our favorite subject for the armies anyway lately, it seems like. The Flora program. This is a, still a story from, uh, I think, last episode we talked about the Quad A up in Nashville. Uh, this is kind of a story from that. This is from Ashley Roquet, Breaking Defense. Great, She's a great writer. Uh, Timeline revealed Army Bell flying towards Flora program of record in 2024. Uh, here we go. Army officials... Recently revealed the prospective early timeline for getting into the air with the new future long-range assault aircraft, also known as FLARA, shooting for an established program of record by next year, even if the aircraft might not be ready for fielding until around 2030. This is not part of the article. That seems to be the magic number for a lot of people, right? 2030? Uh, Here's a quote from Major General Robert, back to the article, Major General Robert Barry, who is the PEO, Program Executive Officer for Aviation. We're looking at kicking off this program in a disciplined manner. Uh, Major General Barry told reporters Thursday at the annual Quad A conference in Nashville. The near-term process includes an Army Requirements Oversight Council. If you ever hear that term, it means AROC. Army Requirements Oversight Council meeting in July to validate and approve a capability development document. That will, bear, that will specify FLARA's requirements before senior Pentagon officials hold a Joint Requirements Oversight Council meeting later this year. That's called JROC. So what happens is, real quick, you go, so remember we talked about this sometimes, you have the three Venn diagram circles. You've got uh, requirements, which AFC is responsible for. And then you have uh, acquisition, which takes the requirement and builds the stuff. That's what this guy, General Barry, does. He works for PEO Aviation. He's the one that takes the requirement and builds it with industry. Well, he doesn't build it. In this case, Bell is going to build it. And then the other uh, Venn diagram circle is your money. That's the budget. So you can have a requirement with no money, then you got nothing. You can have... Um, you can have money, but no requirement. You know, it's all, it all works together. So the idea is to go to, and this AROC we just talked about, Army Requirements Oversight Council in July, that's where you take the requirement and you go to, in this case, you go to, we talk about him sometimes, General Rainey, you go to General Rainey and say, this is the requirement for this new helicopter or FLARA. Uh, does it look good to you? And they say, yeah, this is good. Then it's a no kidding, legit requirement, and then you can put money to it to be a program record. That's kind of how it works. I'm, I know I'm oversimplifying it. Uh, and then once, because this is a joint program, or it'll probably be a joint program, because other services will use this thing, once it goes through the Army requirements, it's got to go through the joint requirements. That's why they call it the JROC. I'm not trying to get down into the weeds here. 
I'm just kind of giving you an explanation. Moving on. Uh, if all goes as planned, Barry said service leaders will decide around the April to June 24 timeline if they are ready to transition into a program of record when they hold a milestone B review that helps solidify the acquisition strategy and include the number of aircraft the service wants to buy. Uh, the number of the aircraft, this is me talking, the aircraft the number of service wants to buy should be in the requirement document called a BOI, basis of issue. Moving on. Uh, this process involves a lot of paperwork and sign up. The two-star general said firming up requirements will change very little in terms of Bell's winning prototype bid. But as the service works through the requirements process, that doesn't mean the company is sitting idle. And we have something from Bell, of course. Keith Flell, Bell's Executive Vice President for Military Business, told Breaking Defense today, you know, 28 April, that the company and Army were working together on an integrated baseline review and were getting ready for Milestone B review together. The next thing, as we move toward Milestone B, is a full weapon system preliminary design review that will be required to be completed. Adding work will be fed into a larger pre preliminary design review. As the service and Bell work through the paperwork planning for establishing a formal FLARA program, the results will trickle down into other aircraft programs, including the Blackhawk. Last week, Doug Bush, who we like, the service's head of acquisition, told members of the House Services Subcommittee that this process will help ultimately decide what mix of Blackhawk and FLARA will be and what steps the service needs to take to ensure the former can be used for decades to come, being the Blackhawk. Kind of reminds you a little bit of the uh, the IVAS. Remember the IVAS was supposed to be it, and then you know they're having some problems with the IVAS. So Congress, you know, told the Army, "Hey, maybe this IVAS ain't working as great as you thought. Give us an idea of what. If not everybody gets IVAS, what is the IVAS mixed with the ENVGB? Kind of this thing with the I don't know. Maybe not it's the same." Uh, program a record next year. If I had to put money on, will Flora be a program of next program of record next year? I would say it will not be. I think they got to go to what's called a milestone C review for a program of record. Milestone B is where they enter. There's like three. I don't want to get into that stuff. I don't think it'll be a program of rec, uh, program of record next year. The requirement might be approved next year, but I don't know if it'll be a program of record next year. Uh, that's pretty aggressive. But if they do, uh, that'll be good, I guess. All right, moving on. I spent too much time on that. What am I doing on time? 34 minutes. Okay, now we're going to Air Force story. If I can find it. It's about an aircraft that's been in service. The U-2 has been in service 100 years. Uh, and here it is. Uh, from Rachel Cohen. Uh, Defense News, May 2nd, Air Force prepares to retire U-2 spy planes in 2026. Of course, you know, the U-2 has been around forever. Uh, the Air Force is forging ahead with its plan to retire the storied U-2 Dragon Lady spy aircraft in 2026, fiscal year 2026, as part of a years-long effort to reshape how the service surveils America's adversaries from above. Air Force leaders have been considering retiring the U-2 fleet for nearly two decades asking Congress in some years to ditch the Cold War-era workhorse or in others to retire the RQ-4 Global Hawk drones that were meant to replace it. Now both are on the chopping block. 
If Congress approves the divestment and it lets the Air Force retire its remaining RQ-4s one year later, the service would finish out the decade without the high-altitude reconnaissance aircraft that peers across borders and tracks enemy movements. Uh, the Senator Ted Budd, Republican of North Carolina, noted the services plan for the U-2 on Tuesday in a Senate Armed Services Committee hearing on the Department of Air Force's FY24 budget request. The pending re retirement was briefly mentioned in military budget documents re released earlier this spring. The service's previous spending requests have foreshadowed the end of the U-2 fleet in the mid-2020s, including in it asked for FY21 and 2022. Last year's request did not specify when the airframe would retire, but zeroed out modernization funds after 2025. The newest slate of budget documents acknowledges that the Air Force plans to keep U-2 fleet viable through the end of September of 25, before shifting that money to other priorities. The Air Force expects Congress to remove legislative language that has blocked the jet's retirement in the past, allowing the service to move forward with U-2 divestment in FY26. The annual defense policy acts approved by Congress have sought to ensure the Air Force has a suitable replacement for the U-2 and the RQ-4 before yanking the assets that commanders around the world would rely on for intelligence. But once it cuts to its fleet, the Air Force would turn, would instead turn to space-based sensors to collect similar set of high-altitude images at its budget request said. And a little bit about the U-2. The author does a good job here. The Air Force U-2s are housed at Beale Air Force Base in California and rotate through military installations around the world. The aircraft are famous for their 105-foot wingspan that allows them to glide at the edge of space. The pilots, clad in astronaut-like pressurized suit and the bulbous nose radars and the chase cars that follow the wobbly plane down the runway to ensure they land safely. Uh, known for capturing the images that proved the Soviet Union was building nuclear missile sites in Cuba in 1962, uh, U-2 gained new fame for tracking a Chinese surveillance balloon's journey across the United States earlier this year. Uh, they called the Dragon Lady. So the Dragon Lady has lately taken on a new role as test beds for a host of advanced reconnaissance communication technologies and help vet new artificial intelligence tools in the Air Force's quest for more capable drones. The U-2 is also being used as a surrogate platform and the Air Force's Advanced Battle Management System program, which looks to dra dramatically improve data sharing capabilities among military assets. And that's it for the U-2. 2026, right? Is that what it said? Yep, 2026. FY 2026. Uh, now we're going to the Navy. Submarine story. We don't do enough submarine stories. And this one is about the Los Angeles, uh, Los Angeles class submarines. And here it is from uh, Breaking Defense, Justin Katz, 27 April. Navy attacks sub Alexandria, gets three-year life extension, Scranton next on the list. Uh, the Navy earlier this month completed a, a, a surface life extension for the Los Angeles-class submarine Alexandria, SSN-757, extending its life by three years out to September of 2025, the service said this week. Earlier this month, the Navy said the sub undocked and departed the West Coast 
only Navy-operated floating dry dock, the ARCO, 5 April following a seven-month maintenance period. Uh, that maintenance period also included three service life extension, Naval Sea Systems Command. Let me read that paragraph. That maintenance period also included the three-year service life extension, Naval Sea Systems Command, the agency responsible for managing the services submarine maintenance schedule, toll-breaking defense. Kind of an odd sentence there, sir. Uh, the Navy for several years now has been evaluating each of its Los Angeles-class submarines, which entered the fleet in the 1970s, to determine if their service lives could be extended. The L.A. class is the predecessor to the Virginia class, which the Navy is continuing to build today. Uh, here's a quote from PEO uh, for attack submarines, Rear Admiral Jonathan Rucker. He told reporters in November, the L.A. class Scranton SSN-756 has also been approved for a life extension. Navy spokeswoman for NAVSI told Breaking Defense on Wednesday that that boat is slated, that the boat, I think he means, is slated to begin its maintenance period for the third quarter of FY23 and will result in the sub being operational through FY, uh, through September 2026. There's some good information here. The Pentagon's long-standing requirement for fast attack subs is 66, a metric that the Navy has struggled to hit. The most recent long-term shipbuilding plan indicated there are 50 subs in the service today. Did you guys know that? I did not know that. And even in the most optimistic scenarios, that number won't reach 66 until the early 2050s. That statistic, combined with the fact that, that submarines are one of the most sought-after assets for combatant commanders around the world, makes each service life extension the Navy completes particularly valuable for the broader Pentagon. Now we're going to touch about some of this AUKUS stuff here a little bit. Adding the pressure to keep subs operating as AUKUS, the trilateral security pact between the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia. In February, President Biden announced the so-called optimal pathway for Australia to produce nuclear-powered subs. That would include the United States selling three or five Virginia-class boats as an interim capability, making it even more difficult for the United States to reach a 66-sub goal. Uh, last paragraph here. Although the shipbuilding plan revealed the Navy intends to replace sold-off subs with more Virginia-class boats, the plan was blunt about the fact that the full impact of security agreement will have on Navy shipbuilding is unknown. Last story, 42 minutes. Uh, I don't know if I want to do this story because it's a long story, but I already told you I was going to do it, so I'll have to do it. So we did an Army, Navy, uh, Air Force, Navy, and now Marines. Uh, defense News, Megan Eckstein. May 2. I encourage you to read this story. It's a long story, and I cut a lot of it up. Nothing against Megan. She did a great job writing it, but anyway, I knew this was going to be my last story because it's real long, um, and it's about, of course, amphibious ships and the Marines. I mean, that's all we talk about. Either we're talking about Force Design 2030 or we're talking about amphib ships, and now we're going to talk about amphib ships, which I'm down with. No problem. I like it. Uh, so, Defense News, Megan Eckstein, 2 May, Marines want 31 amphib ships. Pentagon disagrees. Now what? Question mark. Good question, Megan. Remember that, 31 amphib ships. Uh, so, here we go. Hundreds of Americans trapped in war-torn Sudan last month needed a way to get out of the country, but the U.S. Marine Corps, the go-to service for such rescues, could not help. Typically, this kind of mission would be standard for the Navy and Marine Corps Amphibious Readiness Group, 
and the Marine Expeditionary Unit made up of 2,300 Marines aboard three ships who are trained to fight their way into and evacuate citizens from dangerous locations. Instead, as violence surged, the Pentagon relied upon drones to monitor a 500-mile escape route from the capital uh, to the Red Sea port of Port Sudan. For the Americans who fled to the coast, the Pentagon sent an auxiliary transport ship to shuttle them to safety in Saudi Arabia. But at the same time, off the coast of Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, the Bataan ARG, Amphibious Ready Group, and the 26th MEU Marine Expeditionary Unit, I guess that means unit, right? Yep. Uh, we're conducting a non-combatant evacuation simulation. That's also known as NEO, non-combatant evacuation operation. NEO, you might hear that term. Training for the very operation Americans in Sudan needed, but the group stayed put because it was not certified for global missions. Uh, all of this followed a similar situation a few months earlier when service leaders were unable to send a team to Turkey and Syria to, provi to provide aid after a 7.8 magnitude earthquake rocked the region. Um, here's a quote from Major General Roger Turner, Marine Corps Operations Division Director. He told Defense News that naval forces have a razor-thin capacity with amphib ships, and when emergencies arise, there's no capacity to react. It's a trend that could continue. Uh, here we get to some hard stuff here. Today, the Navy has 31 amphib ships, what the Marine Corps considers the bare minimum it needs. But the Pentagon plans to shrink the fleet below that number in FY24. As a result, uh, General Turner anticipates the Corps will be more challenged to respond to global threats, global crisis, not threats. Throughout last year and into the spring, that number, 31 ships, has been the center of debates as Congress, Navy, and Marine Corps, and the Defense Department, and industry weigh in on how many amphibious ships the military needs, what they should look like, and how much they should cost. In June, the Pentagon is expected to complete a study on whether those, on whether to continue buying amphibious ships, and if so, what capabilities those vessels will have. That would be a pretty good report, won't it, in June? For example, the study might back a requirement for 31 ships and recommend continuing to build the San Antonio-class vessels at a cost of $2 billion each. Or the report could recommend a new design that costs less per ship an idea that the U.S. Marine Corps has already rejected, or a third option could be one that, um, the third option is a report could call for continued pause in the Pentagon buying amphibious ships, which would force Ingalls to close its production line and would force the Marine Corps to reevaluate re its amphibious operations plans. So Huntington Ingalls is the one who is building the San Antonio-class amphibious ship. It's a company. Uh, for years, the United States Marines has re had a requirement of 38 amphibious ships with the caveat it would accept 34 in a physically constrained environment. That requirement was based on the rationale that the service needed 38 ships to move two entire Marine Expeditionary Brigades into combat for forcible entry. That makes sense. So they needed 38. They said, we'll take 34 because we're broke. I got it. But in 2019, this is where the you know current commandant of the Marine Corps, General David Berger, he took command of the service and quickly released a document titled Commandant's Plan and Guidance that backed away from the requirement 
of transporting those two brigades, saying the Corps would fight differently in the future. So, Commandant of the Marine Corps says, well, we don't need enough amphib ships to transport two brigades. Since then, a range of concepts have emerged focused on the idea that small units would already be, would already be dispersed dispersed throughout the Pacific region and able to tamp down an emerging conflict until additional forces arrive. That's that uh, Force Design 2030, which we've talked about quite a bit. Uh, so Marine Corps began publicly talking about a 31-ship requirement in 2021, and the Navy acknowledged that requirement in 2022. So it used to be 38. Marine says we'll take 34. And then 2019, in 2021, Marines says, now we need 31. We don't need 38. We don't need 34. We need 31. Uh, according to the Director of Marine Air Expeditionary Warfare Division, Sean Brody, the 31 ship figures based on an idea that the fleet should do three things. This is pretty good. I like this paragraph. Uh, number one, keep two, three ship amphibious ready groups at sea at any given time. Number two, support contingency plans. A call for five three-ship amphibious ready groups to deploy on short notice. And number three, allow for enough ready ships, those not tied up in maintenance, that some would be available for training for Marines in events like fleet exercises. The requirement specifically divided into 10 amphibious assault ships made up of the America class LHA and the WASP class LHD that host fixed-wing jets like the F-35B. F-35B is like the VTOL one, uh, and 21 medium-sized amphibious vessels, either the aging Whit Whitby Island class or the newer San Antonio LPD. And amphibious ready groups includes one amphibious assault ship and two medium-sized ships. I did not know that. I should have known that. I mean, I, I do a defense podcast for crying out loud. I just learned something. So there's three of these ships, right? One is an amphibious assault ship and two are the medium-sized ships. So the 10 amphibious assault ships are the America class and the WASP class. And they can hold aircraft, okay? So they need 10 of those because they hold aircraft probably. That's why they want them. And then the 21 medium-sized are the, either the Whitby Island or the new San Antonio. That's probably where they put all the troops and the, and the vehicles. I'm guessing. All right, move back to the article. Uh, Brody told Defense News the 31 ship is backed by studies undertaken from 2008 to 2022 and reflects ships' recent maintenance readiness rates, which hover around 40%. That rate means in a fleet of 31 ships, 12 or 13 might be available at any time. Remember, it takes three, right? It takes three of them. Uh, one of them takes the aircraft and the other two take the troops, I think. So anyway, if six are to be deployed and other six are getting ready for deployment, that leaves little or no additional capacity for training or surging in response to national disasters or conflicts. This low readiness rate has complicated the discussion and is a key reason why the Marine Corps considers 31 ships bare minimum. Uh, there's a quote here from this guy, Brian Clark, Director of Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Huston Institute. He says 31 ships is the right number, but noted presence is now the driver rather than warfighting lift requirements. While the Amphibious Ready Group and the Marine Expeditionary Unit, which is also known as ARG and MEU, 
team can still storm an island and take it from the enemy forces, the group is most often used to train alongside partners and allies, respond to friendly nations after a national disaster, or rescued American citizens trapped in dangerous countries. So that part where he says train along partners and allies, that's the sh uh, compete. Remember, we talked, we haven't talked about it for a while, but yeah, the compete and the recompete with this multi domain operations, right? Part of it is compete. And to compete, you got to get out there and train with, you know, partners and, you know, Pacific, Europe, wherever, right? That's part of the compete stuff. Uh, moving on. Uh, this guy, Eglin, right? Who's this Eglin guy? Why do I got a quote from him? I don't want to talk about that. Move on. Uh, though the Marine Corps has maintained it needs 31 ships, Pentagon has not committed that requirement. That's kind of an important statement there. DOD's officials have not po spoken publicly on the matter. Asked by Defense News whether the Officer Secretary of Defense backs the 31 ship requirement. Pentagon spokesman Chris Sherwood said the requirement can't be considered in isolation and the department is focused on having the right mix of capabilities to meet the objectives in the 22 National Defense Strategy. That's kind of a non-answer, isn't it? I mean, pretty straight up question Defense News asks. Uh, the Navy's FY23 budget request, shaped by the Office of Secretary of Defense in the White House before going to Congress, called for truncating the San Antonio-class production line after one final ship in the FY. I think we've looked up truncating. I think it means to stop, right? Uh, this move would end the San Antonio program after 16 ships rather than the planned 26. FY24 request advances that plan, including no additional LPDs in the FY, uh, I'm sorry, in the five-year spending plan. Almost done here. With the Marine Corps and the Pentagon at odds, the Office of the Secretary of Defense and the services are conducting a capability and cost analysis to consider alternative ship designs and acquisition strategies that might lower the cost of future amphibious ships. That study is set to conclude in June. We talked about that. Almost done here. A couple more paragraphs. I told you this is a long article. I mean, I, I, I cut a lot of it out. So if you really want to check it out, make sure you go. I'll tell you where it's at at the end here. Uh, now we get a final quote from General Berger, Commandant of the Marine Corps. He told Senate Committee that not having enough ship puts at risk the Marine Corps' ability to deter or win a war, plus their ability to respond to global crisis. The Commandant said, if you still believe three amphibious ships loaded with 2,300 Marines, and they have a deterrent value, and I think they do, then you want to want them right in the adversary's grill, right in their face where they can see all the time. Can we afford conventional deterrence? Absolutely, yes, because the alternative is a lot worse. So, of course, he's down for 31 ships. I mean, they went from, what, 38 to 34 to 31. And if you want to read the whole article, like I said, it's quite a, it's quite a long article. It's from Megan Eckstein, uh, Fence News to May. And I think, uh, to be fair, uh, Breaking the Fence had an article also about this topic. And it was a good article, too. And I just happened to choose this one. I think Justin Katz wrote that one. I might be wrong about that. But anyway, all right, 55 minutes, another long episode. I I wonder if I'm going to lose listeners because I'm going so long. Um, I always want to do a 30-minute show, and maybe 55 minutes might be too long. Uh, I'm probably losing listeners as we speak. Somewhere, I thought I had the sweet spot, but I've lost it. So maybe 
maybe 45 is the right number. I don't know. There's just so many good stories lately. And uh, maybe I should do a better job of cutting some of them out. I don't know. But anyway, I think this is one of the first episodes where we did an Army, uh, Navy, Air Force, Marine, back to back to back. Uh, without That wasn't even on purpose. Maybe I'll try to throw a Space Force in there one time. Next time. Nah, I'll let it be natural. I don't want to try to force something. Okay, that's it. 56 minutes. I didn't mean to keep you this long. Um, anyway, that's it. Episode 119 of the books. Thank you very much for listening and good night.